Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. A year ago this week, the Prime Minister ordered us all to go home and stay there. That was the start of the first national lockdown, the like of which none of us had ever experienced. A year of working at home, keeping apart from friends and family, and shopping online began. So how well did the government handle itself? Boris Johnson, carefully ducking that question and answering a slightly different one, acknowledged this week that there are many things we wish we'd known and many things we wish we'd done differently at the time. A new IFG report sets out 10 lessons for government. We're going to take a look at the score sheet. As the country got to grips with that crisis, it was also adapting to life outside the EU. In the last few months, there have been, in the government's words, some teething problems. Another new IFG report, we're really spoiling you this week, says that that phrase is downplaying the problem. So we'll take a look at whether the problems will persist and how this fits in with the current row with the EU over vaccines. Joining me in the studio again is Alex Thomas, who leads our work on the civil service and co-authored that report on 10 Lessons from the Crisis. Great to have you with us, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. Good to be here. Great. And I'm delighted as well to be joined today by Guardian columnist Raphael Baer. Hi, Raphael. How are you? Hi there. I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. Great. Loved your recent columns on this. Oh, thank you. Let's start with the first anniversary of the national lockdown. More than 125,000 people in the UK have lost their lives to COVID-19. Many more are suffering with the long-term effects. It's a long, long way from Boris Johnson's declaration in March last year that coronavirus would be sent packing in 12 weeks. And he is resisting calls for an early inquiry, but a new IFG paper has already identified 10 areas where the government should learn from it. Alex, as I said, is one of the co-authors of that paper. And the other one is IFG senior researcher Rhys Klein, who joins us now for his podcast debut. Rhys, great to have you here. Great to be here. Rhys, let me start with you. Who did you speak to in this report? Well, we wanted to capture a range of insights from people who have worked in different parts of government across the UK over the past year as it's responded to the sort of seismic shock of COVID. So we spoke over the past couple of months to somewhere between a dozen and two dozen politicians and officials from different parties and different parts of central, local and devolved government. Okay, so right across the the UK then on this, including local government, where you used to work. Absolutely. We thought it was key to see how this shock affected each part of government in turn. And what would be your top lesson? Is there one area where government really failed? Well, if I were to single out one, it would ultimately be the failures of government to effectively broker rapid cross-departmental policy decisions in response to COVID. The UK is quite good at responding to crises where we have a sort of standard model approach that we've tried and tested in the past, floods, terrorist attacks, etc. The problem with COVID is that it was new and it was novel and it required a brand new policy response from almost every part of government. Questions about whether and how to lock down, how to support families and businesses, what to do at the border, all needed brokering and quickly. And what we have seen in our research is that the centre of government was not really very well set up to tackle that policy brokering function. And as a result, we've seen decisions being made too slowly, like the decisions to enter the first, second and third lockdown. And we've also seen policy that's quite incoherent at times and contradictory with other policies from different parts of government. The best example of that being the Treasury's Eat Out to Help Out scheme, promoting people congregating indoors at the same time as SAGE and the Department of Health and Social Care was stressing the risk of that behaviour. 
as you said, that really reflected a, a disagreement within government, which the policy then didn't resolve. That's a very good example. Alex, you used to work right in the heart of government, and your report puts a lot of weight on failures of planning as well. What, what did you mean by that? Yes. What I meant on that is that the, the government has something that has been uh, you know, much examined over the last year called the National Risk Register. And that's the pointy end of a whole kind of architecture of work around risk and contingency planning that sort of emanates from the centre of government and is supposed to reach out across departments. What we found from the interviews that we re- uh, described was that it's a perfectly good description of risk. OK, it had pandemic influenza at the top rather than another novel disease. It's a good assessment. It's as good a job as the government can do to to set all of this out. It describes the likelihood of threats uh, occurring and then the impact of those threats. But what it doesn't do or doesn't do enough is really reach into individual departments uh, and inform the day-to-day, month-to-month policy decisions and operational decisions that are being taken in those departments. So I think the best example of that is probably in the Department for Education, whereas we saw last summer, I think if the DfE was really well prepared for pandemic influenza, which had been top of the National Risk Register, it wouldn't have found it so difficult to cope with shutting schools, teacher absences, remote IT and so on. So there's a, a call for over, you know, over months and years line departments in government to take the uh, findings of the National Risk Register more seriously in the decisions that they make, which doesn't always mean doing the kind of least risky thing, but it does mean being much more acutely aware of that. Uh, That's a good example with the DfE, um, because it didn't seem to have given a lot of thought to what it would mean actually to shut, shut schools. What would be an example in the Department of Health, which had the brunt of a lot of the first questions about how on earth to handle this uh, pandemic? Yeah, so I suppose at the Department of Health, they're closer to the risk of a pandemic and they had had done more contingency planning and and, and more uh, exercising. I think in terms of an example uh, there, it would be around some of the structures in uh, public health England, the uh, operational response. I think the um, uh, supplies of protective equipment. Some of it was out of date. There wasn't enough. Quite a lot of the contingency exercises had focused around quite sort of specific things around you know, having enough body bags or mortuary facilities uh, and didn't kind of go more broadly to think about how the response to the crisis would be sustained over a, uh, over a, a, a long time. No, those are interesting points. So they did get the Nightingale Hospital set up very, very quickly, which shows some kind of, of planning. But they didn't have the staff. <laughs> Yes, but it must have been someone's plan to, to do this. Yes, I suspect so in terms of sort of operationalizing the big, uh, you know, the Excel centre. There was a plan to do that, but it again didn't reach deeply into enough to say, well, how are we going to staff these things? How are we going to uh, be able to uh, recondition the NHS to, to do that? All that said, we have to say we, we, we found that the NHS itself did pretty rapidly reprioritize and uh, recondition itself to, to respond to the crisis. So that was something that came out pretty positively from the from the lessons. Interesting. Raphael, let's go on to how the Prime Minister has um, has handled this year's anniversary, incredibly difficult point for him. And he and his scientific advisors were bombarded with questions at the press conference for the anniversary about what they got wrong. What did they say and what did you make of it? Oh, well, I thought it, it wasn't entirely surprising that the Prime Minister made a concession specifically on the point of of sort of scientific uncertainty. You know, essentially, he said, you know, we underestimated uh, uh, the, the non-asymptomatic transmission uh, and therefore there was a sort of a misjudgment based on an absence of good knowledge about the nature of COVID, which is the sort of thing 
error, as it were, you can concede as a prime minister without opening yourself up to too much uh, political liability. Uh, and he's not stupid. He understands that he couldn't just stand up and say, we did everything right. We did everything fine. And in fact, he did try and do that towards the end of last year, didn't he? There was a moment when he said, in all honesty, I think we did absolutely everything we could possibly have done uh, and must have understood pretty quickly that that was the wrong tone to strike. I think where it gets trickier is ultimately there was scientific uncertainty at the beginning uh, and and there were, there were difficult decisions to make on incomplete information. But that fed into two other problems very specific to the prime minister and the character of the prime minister, which were a sort of basically an ideological presumption that you simply couldn't do things like lockdowns uh, and that he, it's something very deeply resistant in Boris Johnson and in the Conservative Party to the sorts of measures that it turns out were just the practical requirement of containing the virus in the absence of a vaccine or, or good treatments. Uh, and the other one was his, his temperament, which was both naturally... Uh, ebullient and optimistic and wanted to perform the role of uh, the happy-go-lucky leader who's sort of geeing up the nation, which simply didn't suit him to the task of delivering very hard, very difficult, bad news to people. Uh, and also he is by temperament a bit of a prevaricator. And we know it's everyone who's worked with him uh, when he was mayor of London uh, and when he's been in the cabinet and, and right up until and including his time in Downing Street, will say he, he doesn't like making decisions until the very last minute. And he tends to agree with whoever the last person he spoke to was. And he found himself in a situation where there wasn't a certain decision that had to be made. But the most important thing was that it was done quickly. Uh, and so my sense is that because so much of what went wrong in 2020 really comes down to the temperament the beliefs and judgment errors that were made right at the very top of government. He simply can't acknowledge that error was made on that scale. It's too personal to him and therefore he has to try and move on. All right. So let me take you into one point, uh, this shocking statistic that around two thirds of the deaths have happened since September, which really puts the spotlight on the decisions about the second lockdown and whether those were late. You might say, um, as, as defenders of the government do, look, uh, you should give them a pass for the, the beginning of this. People really didn't know as much as they know now about how quickly it moved, about asymptomatic transmission, all this kind of stuff. But by September, we've had many reports of the discussions then. And at that point, Boris Johnson was not saying, it was not agreeing with the last people who spoke to him. It appeared that there were quite a cluster of people around him, including his scientific advisors, saying, look, we need an early lockdown. We need a, a two-week uh, firebreak or something, and he was resisting that. So what do you make of that point in particular? I think there was a long period, including exactly that moment you're talking about, where the government had simply not understood a pretty clear lesson, I think, from looking at other countries that have been more successful in fighting the pandemic, which was that there is no middle way between economic opening uh, and social closing. You can't say, well, we'd love to just shut everything down for a public health agenda, but there's this separate issue, which is livelihoods and jobs, uh, which is equally imperative, but different, and, and therefore that you need to keep try and keep sort of the economic activity ticking over. And actually, the, the Chancellor was very important in that respect. And Rishi Sunak was very much behind the argument that there was this somehow balancing act that you had to strike between lives and livelihoods, so to speak. Uh, and and it, it, the evidence was already there available that that doesn't really work, that actually you end up 
you know, with the worst, worst of both worlds. And what you really need to do is be extremely aggressive, extremely quickly in containing the virus. And then that allows you a more sustainable opening. And I think they only really learned that lesson later uh, when, you know, part, and were able to, as it were, blame the Kent variant for changing the circumstances that would allow them to say, oh, no, now we've changed our minds because this Kent version is so much nastier and more transmissible that we have to change the balance. Actually, that was a decision they the judgment call they should have made earlier. But the, the reality is that partly, again, as I say, because there was so much pressure coming from the backbenches of the Conservative Party uh, with that libertarian tinge saying the economic motive and imperative should be paramount, that they sort of try to have their cake and eat it, which, as we know, is the sort of governing ethos of, of Boris Johnson in other respects. So I think ultimately that sort of deference to a treasury anxiety about what would happen to the economy really, for want of a better word, kind of polluted the clarity of judgment in terms of what good public health policy would have involved. Yeah, well, it, it may be that the prime minister has moved on from that. There seems to be uh, seems to be less of that. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think I think they have basically revised their whole risk management approach, but only because only since December. Uh, Reese, we've just been talking about the, the decisions that the Chancellor made, which arguably were um, not helpful for the, the second wave, but some of the things he did represent the things that went uh, most right, if you like. Isn't, 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 didn't your report find, find that? Yes, I think that's very true. Our report drew out the insight that um, actually the government's ability to deliver and execute its work, especially where it could harness and adapt existing systems, was quite resilient and effective. And um, uh, the, the rollout of the furlough scheme is, is, a, is a brilliant example of that, as led by the Treasury and HMRC, working closely with businesses and unions in there as well. Another example would might be universal credit in a similar vein, which actually withstood a huge surge of demand and the rate of people who were uh, receiving their payments on time actually improved in the early weeks of the pandemic. So I think that the Treasury were able to, to harness those existing systems to deliver work quite effectively in some instances. That's a really interesting point, because if you ask people, they often say, oh, well, government makes good decisions. It just can't implement them. It can't, it can't enact them. It doesn't get get that right. But actually what you've picked up in your report is there are cases where where the opposite was true. I mean, Alex, what's your what's your take on this? That policy decisions didn't go that well, but some of the systems held up. Yeah, I do think I think it's a really striking point that came out of the conversations that we had because there is this sort of slightly cliched yes ministry type uh, view sometimes that the the person in Whitehall knows best. The policy teams in the civil service are the elite and are the kind of the people who are making the right uh, judgments, and it's the operational uh, and teams and people in local government who one of our interviews described as below the salt who are less talented and less effective. Um, obviously, there are there are good people and bad people. All all over the system. But the pandemic did turn that on its head to some extent. And I also think we're partly seeing some of that in the in the Brexit. Uh, I know we'll come on to talk about it, but some of the sort of operational systems around Brexit and in the pandemic have held up uh, you know, tolerably well, not everything perfect, but they've worked. I think the point Reese makes, though, about uh, reconditioning existing systems is really important. Where the operational failings happened was, and the obvious example is Test and Trace, where the government tried to build new systems in a centralised way very, very quickly. Really off of people's accounts of their friends and network and so on, which is obviously very different from trying to roll out a vaccine using the NHS database, which finally, after decades, is, 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 appears to be working very 
Well, um, I guess some things don't change about government if they're using soup. People are still using phrases like below the salt, but we'll <laughs> leave that one. Raphael, you, you've, been, you've been writing about the need for an inquiry. But what, what's the case? Essentially, I think there are there are two aspects to this. One is, is at a most fundamental level, the purpose of all inquiries is to learn lessons so that in the event of something happening in the future, the state, the government, the society are better equipped. And I think there's, for all the reasons we've just been discussing, there are clearly all sorts of lessons that you have to learn. Um, and this might not be the last pandemic or it might not be the last national emergency that really tests the resilience of the resilience of, of state structures. Uh, so that's a good reason. And the reason to, to get on with it quite quickly is that these things just take a very, very long time. Uh, drawing up terms of reference is going to be very challenging because, you know, you could either focus on what happened in Whitehall, you could focus on what happened in the economy, you could focus on on sort of health inequalities and how all sorts of social questions in terms of racial disparities were, were exacerbated by this. So if you're not careful, your inquiry ends up being an inquiry into the entire condition of Great Britain in 2020. Uh, and and you, so it's difficult to set functioning parameters for that sort of thing. So those are, those are sort of all sort of practical reasons to want to do it and to want to have it a statutory uh, inquiry so that you can actually uh, demand evidence and you can take evidence under oath and, and you can see documents and subpoena witnesses. What's the, main, what's the main question it should ask though? Is it should fewer people have died? But again, you're, you're into all these hindsight questions that that, that that we're talking about. Is it about lessons to be learned? I mean, how, how do you frame this thing? Well, I mean, again, there, there are essentially two different, as it were, interested parties in this. I think there are essentially bereaved citizens who want an answer to the question, uh, why did so many more people die in Britain than died in incomparable developed countries? I think that's actually a perfectly valid question to ask. Uh, we're a you know a developed Western state in the third decade of the 21st century. Why did so many people die? Uh, and then there's the people, the, the sort of people, as it were, the Westminster bubble, for want of a better word, uh, agenda, which is, did the levers of government break? Were they rusty? Was there something about the dashboard in the machinery that was not equipped for an emergency on this scale? And therefore, how would you upgrade it? What would what new software would you put in? What new hardware would you have? So I think you you probably kind of want to ask both of those questions. And I, the question is how you structure it. But there's a third element to this, which is, I'm afraid, uh, uh, trickier, but part of the, you know, raises issues of the broader prevailing political culture, which is on a personal level, I don't really have much confidence in the current government and the current prime minister to not want to very quickly mythologize the telling of the pandemic in a way that is self-exonerating. So you essentially uh, narrate it in terms of this extraordinary act of God, this thing that happened, the floodwaters came in and there was nothing anyone could have done about it. But then, lo and behold, heroic uh, vaccine program comes along thanks to the, the plucky brilliance of Britain and its wonderful scientists and, and anything else and greed or whatever the Prime Minister wants to attribute it to. Uh, and we were all liberated and round of applause, everyone now please move on. At a, at a personal level, I just feel the need to, as it were, to sort of cordon off the disaster site very quickly and, and sort of find the black boxes and start looking at what actually happened before there is a political agenda to very quickly bulldoze the site, you know, discard the black boxes and move on as quickly as possible because that would be in the prime minister's interest. So that's a sort of a political, as it were, motive that I can identify with for wanting it to be done. But I accept that that might sound quite partisan. There are non-partisan reasons also for wanting to do it. 
I, I, was, I was going to say, I, I was trying to find the right moment at which to say, Raphael, that is your view, and the IFG is indeed neutral. And there are very legitimate non-partisan reasons as well to just want sure. to, you know, good IFG reasons to want to find <laughs> uh, all the right answers to, to the questions asked before that yeah. bit. <laughs> Um, Rhys, uh, we were just mentioning local government before. What do you think this inquiry, if it happens, which uh, I think it probably will because the Prime Minister has in some form committed himself to it, not, though, not when, but what do you think it ought, ought to ask about local government? Obviously, uh, these issues are informed by the debates around levels of funding and devolution to local government. But what our research found specifically from the pandemic and the interviewees we spoke to was that uh, uh, the the sort of personal and operational relationships between central and local government have really broken down. And, you know, that's political and it's also quite personal, characterised by sort of relationships of bitterness and suspicion. But I think importantly for the UK's ability to respond to shock events like COVID-19 is that it causes operational problems and missed opportunities. So, for example, last summer, we saw that uh, councils were prevented from developing really robust outbreak plans because the Department of Health and Social Care were not making the right data available to councils about new local cases in their area. Um, And that sort of broken relationship also leads to uh, uh, the instinct to centralise in Whitehall. We've spoken already about test and trace, but the decision there to use private consultants over making the most of local public health expertise had a profound impact on contact rates. You know, local areas have been running contact tracing schemes for about 150 years. And once they were involved in a couple of months down the line in July, the rates of contact shot right up. And a final example of that might be the NHS volunteering scheme. A great idea, really captured the public mood. 750,000 people signed up, but it wasn't as impactful as it could have been because it was managed centrally through NHS England. Therefore, it was slower at matching volunteers to voluntary work. So hopefully the inquiry will draw out some of those tensions. Yeah, those are really good examples. So Alex, tie this together for us. Uh, is it going to happen and, and when? Um, I think, uh, like you, I think there will be an inquiry, but I think for the reasons Raphael set out, uh, it's so strongly in the Prime Minister and the government's interest to wait until more dust has settled, that it will uh, it will take a long time. I also think, again, this comes back to the scope points that, that we were talking about earlier, it is going to be so broad and there's going to be so many different parts to it. If you think about previous inquiries with Chilcot or Leveson or, or the others, even they had to kind of segment and they took a very long time to report so i wouldn't expect to see the conclusions anytime soon so i think it it is something in the you know in the ifg impartial world it's something that will end up usefully informing governments but governments in 10 15 20 years time rather than a, a sort of rapid uh, ability to, to to learn lessons in in flight oh good grief that sounds very pessimistic in a way <laughs> um reese thanks for being with us and um, well done on your terrific report Thank you very much. Okay, let's turn now to an old friend, or at least an old companion, Brexit. It's getting on for three months since the UK moved out of the transition period and embarked on a new era entirely outside the EU. So we're going to take stock there too. How's it been working out for the UK? How well prepared were businesses and government? and what changes are still to come. 
Brexit has not, it's fair to say, ushered in a new era of cordial EU-UK relations. And we have the ongoing row about vaccines, which is only helping to worsen the atmosphere. We've got a new paper. The end of the Brexit transition period. Was the UK prepared? And that takes stock of where things are. One of its authors, our Associate Director, Maddie Timont-Jack, is joining us now. Hi, Maddie. Hi, Bronwyn. Maddie, the Prime Minister says there have been some teething problems. Is that fair? Look, I think to answer this question, I think we do have to acknowledge, and I think it's difficult actually to overstate quite how much has changed um, with our sort of leaving the transition period. Now, last January, we did technically leave the EU, which meant we left the political institutions. But on the ground, very little changed. We remained part of the EU Single Market and Customs Union. And that meant that sort of goods um, and services could continue to, to sort of flow freely between the UK and the rest of the EU. Um, and that's that's the big change, really, is that the, the agreement that the UK reached with the EU has meant that there is new paperwork, there are new checks, there are new processes that, that businesses need to comply with when looking to trade with the EU. And I should very carefully say that when we're talking about goods, we are referring to Great Britain, of course, not the UK, because um, trade with between Northern Ireland and the EU is um, governed by the Northern Ireland Protocol. And there are sort of different processes that apply there. And I think sort of, so to sort of answer your question then were there teething problems well yes there have been teething problems the deal was only reached uh what was only published five days before the end of the transition period the idea that anyone could get their head around the complexity of the arrangements that now govern trade um was sort of it was completely unfeasible and so i do think we saw businesses either fill in the wrong forms or not quite comply with what they were meant to be doing we also saw you know problems of private it systems not talking to the government IT systems and sort of, you know, there are those sorts of issues that we have seen. And so, yes, there have been teething problems. But as I sort of try to suggest, there are also the sort of level of structural change that has come means that for some businesses, they're going to have to make quite difficult choices about how they operate. You know, business models have been set up on the sort of premise that you can move goods very easily between the EU and the UK, and that is now no longer the case. So supply chains will have to change, possibly. Um, some businesses might choose to stop trading or at least reduce the amount of trade they're doing with the UK, EU, at least for a period of time, as they try and understand whether it's feasible or not for them to continue. And I think the other really important thing to say is that, you know, we are now a third country when it comes to trade with the EU. And that means that some goods actually are no longer able to be traded with the EU at all, or they have to go through different processes to qualify. And I think shellfish is quite a good example of that, where the sort of level of purification that they need to to have before they can go into the EU market, previously that wasn't a problem, and now that is. And there's going to be quite big questions for some of those um, shellfish sort of um, processes, whether or not they can sort of um, actually comply with those rules and trade with the EU at all. Right. So those those are, those are permanent. Quite a lot. <laughs> they're, not, they're not just um, they're not just teething problems. Raphael, I mean, the January trade figures were a shocker, uh, just showing a plunge in uh, trade both ways, the UK or Great Britain and and, uh, and the EU. Um, how much do you think is going to be enduring? We're obviously waiting for the February figures. Yeah, I mean, some of that January number is a bit exaggerated because people had stockpiled in advance. And so you get a sort of a, an unusual, uh, as it were, hump and then drop. But uh, everything Maddie's just said describes exactly why there will be very serious permanent disruption. And I mean, I see it uh, very substantially through the, the sort of strategic and political lens, which is that the, the disruption is not a function necessarily of there being new processes that you have to work out at the border. That's friction and 
which obviously impedes trade slightly. But essentially, the, the, the strategic concept of particularly Boris Johnson's version of Brexit was rivalry and competition over partnership and cooperation. I mean, the, the very idea uh, was that you sacrifice easy open market access in exchange for total regulatory autonomy. So all that difficulty is basically baked in. And I think one of the most important things, I mean, Maddie said lots of very important things there, but the one that really leapt out at me is this, the, the very fact of being a third country, I think is something that diplomatically, economically, and in every respect, uh, the UK hadn't really psychologically understood uh, in terms of its future relationship with the European Union, because the UK is a big, powerful G7 country, permanent UN Security Council seat, nuclear weapons. You know, it's a peer of France and Germany. And right up until the very end of the negotiations, the UK did not really understand that there would that being a third country would fundamentally alter your ability to participate in conversations with the European Union regarding matters of both trade and everything else. And so that, you know, even when it comes to the internal decisions that the EU might make about things such as vaccines, but all sorts of other things as well, the, being outside the room means that there, is going to be, there are going to be times when Ljubljana matters more than London. Yeah. Uh, and I think sort of that that sort of mentally processing that change in status has been more difficult for the UK than for the EU uh, for, for kind of for obvious reasons. Thanks. Thanks. For that. And this phrase, um, third country, of course, is the EU jargon for meaning not part of the EU anymore. <laughs> Alex, um, should the government have done more to help businesses prepare or couldn't it? It should before the turn of the year. I think uh, as as Maddie and the team's report sets out, uh, things have got better over the last few months. Yes, it should. But your question, I think, is the right one. Could it have? Because one of the things, and this goes back to when I was still a uh, civil servant in government, but has certainly been the case over the last uh, 18 months. When you don't have a steady end state, it is very, very hard then to advise businesses on what the rules are going to be, what they need to do to prepare. So when you're trying to juggle all these sort of you know multi-dimensional scenarios of, of of what might happen deal no deal different types of brexit different levels of market access and then you combine that with a government that was unwilling or unable to face up to some of those trade-offs in a prime minister that wasn't uh being uh straightforward about what they were going to be you sort of completely tie yourself in knots so the government just couldn't communicate with businesses so it's not it's 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 not a surprise there um uh, i i it was very very striking there can't be that many ifg reports where um it says uh in in such uh, clear terms that the prime minister wasn't being honest about uh non-tariff barriers for example can I just jump in on that quickly? Because I, I completely agree with Alex. And I think that it has been very difficult, particularly for civil servants to communicate with with business. But I think I, I would, I mean, as Alex said, you know, we have been pretty um, strongly worded in our report. And I would be quite critical of actually the fact that from, you know, January 2020, we knew that the government wanted to leave the single market and customs union. We knew that lots more friction was going to be introduced in the UK-EU trading relationship, or at least the GBEU trading relationship. And I do think that particularly last summer, heading into the autumn, I do think that was a real problem with the government's communications campaign, that they didn't, they wanted to paint a picture of Sunlit Uplands. And look, you know, there are going to be some opportunities from Brexit, and I'm sure that we'll be hearing more from the government on that. I'm not trying to say that isn't the case. But when you're trying to get businesses to get ready, particularly when they're 
grappling with the impact of a global pandemic. You need to stress what will happen if you're not ready. And you need to stress actually the sort of quite serious consequences of what is coming at the end of the year. And I do think that the government didn't. And, you know, maybe that, as as Alex said, it was about the fact they couldn't because of the politics. But I, I think that we can be quite critical of the government on that point. Let's also, sorry, it's important to remember in that context that at the end of 2020, just as much as at the end of 2019, there was still this idea in play that conceptually the UK government could somehow threaten an even worse case scenario than a bad deal, you know, the sort of the no deal scenario as as a sort of a legitimate way of getting leverage in the negotiations. Now, many people would say that was just a ridiculous thing to threaten or that that was not actually a viable option. But for as long as it was the case that the UK, not only was it the UK government's view that maybe no deal was something you could do, but you had a cabinet that was recruited entirely from the pool of people who were prepared to advocate that position. It was always going to be difficult to communicate to businesses and to anyone else the reality of what Brexit was going to involve in the short term. And Maddie, what about the Northern Ireland problem? I'm just picking up on some of the points that uh, Raphael has just, just made. I mean, the Northern Ireland problem appears to be one of the enduring ones, particularly if the EU wants to take a hard line. Well, I think with the Northern Ireland Protocol, what I would say is that, you know, last last May, actually, we published a report on, on sort of the challenges the government faced in implementing the protocol. And I think we pretty much raised every single issue that has ended up happening, um, because ultimately, the what, what was sort of signed up to, I mean, essentially, the government didn't want to acknowledge that by agreeing to sort of um, to Northern Ireland remaining essentially part of the EU single market for goods um, and also remaining within the EU customs territory, that that would mean a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And then the type of Brexit the government then pursued meant that border is even harder than it might have been because of the fact that they wanted to leave the sort of the EU rulebook. The very big political problem here for the UK government is that the simple fact of implementing the protocol is an affront to a lot of unionist opinion in Northern Ireland. And you've got Stormont elections next year. Uh, you know, the, the, the political situation there is very complicated. But once, if it is the UK government position that a deal it has signed is also sort of um, morally outrageous with regards to the concept of the United Kingdom, it's in an impossible position uh, it, it, because it, it has to choose between honouring a treaty and being true to a political principle that is holding up a sacrosanct. And they, they have to find a way or be offered a way to sort of walk down, walk back from that very out forward ideological position because the two things cannot be resolved at the same time. But the EU is also you know, is taking quite a hard line on this. I mean, Alex, are you surprised in the, with the line that the EU has taken on the city, for example? Because the, the UK government was thinking, you know, a lot of the Brexit negotiations it didn't bring the city financial services centrally into this, but it kept thinking, assuming in a way that equivalents are uh, this, this this word for you know, allowing city firms to operate in the EU, the EU would grant this, and that isn't at all the case now. Has someone been naive? I'm not surprised at all. Um, I mean, the EU is the world's regulatory superpower, uh, and it's not going to give up that in any way, shape or form. Also, the EU is, uh, you know, for good or for ill from the UK's point of view, very good at uh, sort of exercising its power and um, uh, maximising the leverage that it can extract. So I'm not surprised about uh, that. I do think 
the um, the sort of political context, uh, and this is playing out on vaccines as well, has made it less likely to get a deal that is in mutual interest. And I think it probably goes back to Raphael's point about the sort of strategic competition. If your vision for Brexit is as a strategic competitor to the European Union, then don't be surprised when the European Union treats you like one. Um, and that's that comes to the heart of it. That's a very fair point. Let's turn to this question of vaccines at the moment. Raphael, you've been writing quite a bit about this. I must say, to me, the EU does not look here like one of the world's great regulatory superpowers and that it was very slow to approve some of of the vaccines. But we're now into a mild version of a a vaccine war, aren't we? Uh, Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in terms of the relationship with the UK, there's there's a sort of asymmetry here, which is that the UK sort of depiction of this is very much about a rivalry with the EU or, you know, the Prime Minister says he doesn't want that rivalry, he wants to cooperate. But they see this, you know, the argument, the threat from the Commission, the European Commission, to block exports uh, is seen as a sort of an act of almost aggression by the European Union against the UK. Whereas when you look at the way it's being discussed within the EU, uh, the villain isn't Britain, the villain is AstraZeneca. And it's a question of, you know, you know, what what was contained in the contracts and whether the contracts were entered into without actually the capacity to deliver. So again, I think there's a tendency on the British side to think this is much more about us uh, than actually it is in the minds of most Europeans. Uh, but and that's partly because overlaid on that is the fact that the, you know, the vaccine program is going well in the UK and going very badly in the European Union. Uh, and there is this sort of fizzing anxiety, I think, on the European side that if you do something at full union competence uh, and it's the commission that's taken charge of this and it goes wrong uh, and it becomes a matter of life or death that automatically triggers some nerves about you know what you're saying about the functionality of the whole european project so uh, i think it is it's it's it looks very very bad uh, and the fact that there is a sort of a tension in the response between a commission position uh, which is defensive uh, and and sort of lashing out in terms of threatening to block exports and then a, a sort of a council position eu leaders saying okay let's calm this down everyone you know we don't need to get into a tit for tat vaccine trade wars sort of describes a tension in, in that's very much more about internal eu matters than it is about the relationship between the eu and the uk so i wonder whether you may be being a, di- a bit generous to eu politicians there who are very much seeing their headlines in their own countries about how well britain is doing um, I had a German say to me this week, oh, we all want to be Brits as far as the vaccine goes. Um, and, and, you know, these leaders are under considerable pressure at home about the um, from the apparent shortcomings of the EU. I mean, Alex, how do you think the UK should play this now? Well, and I think the interesting just on, on that point, uh, European leaders were under less pressure before their... COVID cases started ticking up. So this is, this is a sort of perfect storm at the moment, which which is that there, there had been an argument that the UK okay, was doing better on the vaccine, but uh, we were um, in a very uh, dark place in terms of case numbers, whereas that's now starting to turn around. This is the sort of issue that it will be a, a catastrophe if global or UK European uh, vaccine uh, cooperation breaks down because of the complexity of the manufacturing process, because of the nature of the uh, distribution of it. Um, it is in absolutely nobody's interest for that. So my expectation is that karma heads will prevail on this. I think we're starting to see quite a lot of that already, but that doesn't mean it won't leave quite a lasting impression on relationships on other matters. So I think calm it down, um, but also be, be realistic about what it means for future cooperation. So Maddie, if relations worsen, 
or if they even if they they, they, they stabilise as Alex is is uh, describing as they might, what does that mean for this post Brexit world we're now in? Well, I think it just makes things quite difficult, to be honest. I mean, I think that the the thing that we have sort of repeatedly said is, look, Brexit isn't done yet. There's still quite a lot of issues that need to be resolved with with the EU. There are also there's phasing in of new arrangements that need to ha- be happening on the on the UK side. And for businesses, I think what they really want is certainty about what this relationship looks like, what the trading relationship looks like, and, and know that things aren't going to change sort of at a moment's notice. And so we've mentioned Northern Ireland. I think that that's really really important the UK and the EU are able to work together to sort of make the Northern Ireland Protocol work. I think we've got to remember that there's going to be Assembly elections next year and that's going to be sort of decide the makeup of the Assembly who will vote on whether or not parts of the Protocol will continue to apply in 2024. So there there is, I think... there is a concern that if if this sort of relationship worsens, that it will bleed out into other areas. But I think I'd also echo Raphael and Alex's points that I, at this stage, I'm not convinced that the vaccine row will do that yet. I think the thing that really matters is how Lord Frost wants to approach um, managing the implementation and the negotiations over the trading cooperation agreement and over the Northern Ireland Protocol. So that's really where I'm I'm focusing at the moment. And I agree with Alex, it does seem like there are warmer words on the vaccine front at this stage. And I think that, you know, for, for, there's there's a sort of short term concern and interest in, in the politics of all of this and how domestic populations are going to respond to a desperate for the vaccine. But there obviously is a longer term sort of point about the fact that actually, you know, we need everyone to get vaccinated around the world to actually try and get out of this pandemic. And so I think there is a longer term political interest on that front anyway, that that sort of it is important, I think, for, for leaders on both sides of the channel to, to remember. On that pretty optimistic note, which I wasn't entirely expecting, I think we're <laughs> going to have to draw it together there. That's it for this edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Bruce Klein, Maddie Timon-Jack and Raphael Baer. Thanks so much for being with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel, There are lots of great new episodes heading that way, including an event on misinformation, rather important right now in the vaccine rollout, as well as being one of Prince Harry's new jobs. And there's going to be one on the launch of the Industrial Strategy Council's final report. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a review as well. We're happy to be told if there are teething problems. And check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. There's a lot to read and listen to there, including these brilliant new reports that we've been talking about today. So that's it for this week. It's been an extraordinary and at times devastating year. Just hoping for a better one ahead. Have a good weekend.